You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. In this world and beyond, there are experiences in life to which only a small few can speak to with such detail. Experiences that to most seem unimaginable. Something misremembered from a distant past, or perhaps a desperate cry for attention. But for those who have truly been contacted, or at least those who believe it, Their experiences are far too real. Horrific to some, ambiguous to others. They almost always have the same basic story to tell. That they were taken. To where exactly and why is unknown. This week on Into the Portal, we delve back into the world of UFOlogy, circa 1947, with a look at the bizarre phenomena of alien abduction and the fascinating case of a woman named Charlotte Brown. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are back with a UFO episode. That's right. Woo-hoo. Delving back into some UFOlogy for you guys. And a lot of people have been asking about that. So, And it's Canadian, which I love. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Actually, that never even really occurred to me. It, is. it totally is. Yep. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Sweet. So yeah, so, welcome back, everyone. Yeah. Um, we're a little late today. So thank you so much for your patience. Uh, normally we do the Sunday release. We're actually thinking about starting to do Monday releases now just because it makes more sense with our schedule. So we'll mm-hmm. push it back a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah. But um, thank you all so much for your patience. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like um, they, they switched my weekends. Now my Saturday is Monday. Yeah. That's kind of fun though. I like having Mondays off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of nice. Yeah. Especially after a really long, busy, busy weekend of talking to people yeah. my entire shift all day, every day. Sometimes when I come home, I just don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so yeah, we waited until now. Definitely. And uh, I guess we ought to say happy Father's Day or late Father's Day. Yeah, yeah, happy belated Father's Day to everybody out there. We were kind of distracted with that yesterday too. Mm-hmm. Went golfing and uh, had some had a barbecue. So yeah, mm-hmm. shout out to all the dads out there. We know we have some listen to the show. Shout out to Wes out there in Australia oh, yeah, and yeah. all of our, all the dads that listen. And also... Um, as a p- part of the housekeeping here, we got a really cool package in the mail. 
Um, shout out to Canadian Girl from Nothing Ever Happens in Canada podcast, one of the members of our Straight Up Strange Network lineup. Mm -hmm. She sent us some awesome stickers and pins, and they're just really cool. Love it. Thank you so much. They are really, really cool. So make sure you go check her out. Definitely. That show is a true diamond in the rough, and I love it. It's so good. She goes through so many awesome, interesting Canadian topics, some of which, honestly, I never heard of before. No, neither did I. Which is really cool. And that kind of brings us to our contest announcement for the network, which is really cool. We actually just posted a video on our socials, so go check it out. We have a winner for our Don't Stop Believing contest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah. The winner will be notified via email, mm-hmm. so make sure that you're looking out for your emails there. Definitely. But otherwise, yeah, go check out the video. It's fun. Check it out. And if you guys didn't have a chance to enter in time, no big deal. We mm-hmm. still encourage you to sign up for the newsletter because it's going to be super fun. It's just monthly, once a month, no spam, mm-hmm. cool updates on the network, other contests, and just cool offers. Once we get our strange shop of oddities and treasures up and running, we'll be um, sending you guys exclusives from that. So yeah, we encourage you hit up straightupstrange.com and check it out. Exactly. Well, let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. Today we are heading to Muskoka, Ontario. The year is 1947, and this is the story of Charlotte Brown. This is actually an alias of a Canadian girl who experienced multiple abductions in her youth, the first of which occurred in the early post-war years of 1947, which is also very um, memorable for other UFO phenomena, correct? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So those who are familiar with UFO, ufology, UFO, UFO lore, I can't talk, <laughs> will remember obviously the Roswell crash in New Mexico, also one that we covered on our show, uh, the Maury Island incident. That's right. Just as a couple references there. Yep. Kenneth Arnold and uh, that whole chestnut. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. Yep. But it's interesting because the experiences of Charlotte went much farther than your simple UFO sighting. Charlotte was abducted by unknown entities that enticed her into their craft in a field nearby her rural home. So this is how the story of Charlotte began, as recorded in 1986 in a broadcast of CBC Morningside with host Peter Gwoski. Okay. One night, a young Canadian girl, Charlotte Brown, was awakened from her slumbers with the urge to go down to a nearby field near her home. She exited through the kitchen, and the time read 10.10. The young girl crossed a swampy area into a field where there was a bright light. No sounds were to be heard. No crickets or any regular country ambient sound. The young girl crossed... Oh, sorry. As she peered further, the light appeared to be a doorway. Or at least this is how Charlotte perceived it. Behind this light, there was a large craft, about 30 by 30 across. Okay, so hmm. this is her first account. She's compelled to go outside. That's the first interesting point to me about this, right? Yeah. There's something well, that we come across in a lot of these accounts, right? Well, but the interesting part about it is that it was a feeling for her. It wasn't yeah. as if she had um, bright lights flashing outside of her window. Right. She didn't have any um, telepathic communication telling her to go outside per se. Right. Maybe it was a little bit more subliminal, right? She was quite young. She was about nine at the time of this occurrence. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's tough to say whether or not, I mean... Yeah, because like the the classic quintessential thing when you think about an alien abduction is just that like laying in bed, bright light in the window, maybe even a the owl, the classic owl shape, 
right? Like from uh, from Strange Encounters of the Ooh. Fourth Kind or whatever. And also paralysis. So Sleep paralysis, yeah. Unable to move, unable to even blink in some cases. Right. Usually the eyes are able to move around, though, and kind of take in what's going on. The other thing, too, about when she describes the craft itself, she walks outside, she sees a bright light, realizes that it's a doorway. 30 by 30 across, that sounds a lot to me like kind of the classic saucer shape mm-hmm. of a UFO from that era. 30 by 30. What does she mean, though? 30 wide and 30 high? Because obviously she'd be seeing it from one angle. Right. So. And she's young. She is young. So she's retroactively being like, okay, would it have been this by this across? Mm -hmm. clearly a large object though i mean that's not small and the thing is too just to back her up a little bit further like oh a nine-year-old knows what 30 by 30 is (laughs) but the thing is this happened in a field nearby her home so she would have the reference point to go back to right so in her years all throughout her youth growing up at the same rural home she would have repeatedly encountered that same site meaning that she would be very very familiar with it and would be able to reference roughly in her memory how big that object appeared in that space. And we'll mention that in a sec too, but I mean, like, imagine being constantly reminded of this. So you're always, you're right there. You're living in the same spot. Obviously, you're going to be constant. Every time you walk past that site, Mm -hmm. that'd be a weird feeling. It gets even weirder though. Yeah. So, all right. Charlotte noticed that there was a doorway and that it was a craft. It wasn't just a bright light, not just like your classic orb scenario here. So in this bright light, there was a small being that appeared at the doorway. It gestured for her to go into the craft. Understanding the creature telepathically, Charlotte went in. There was no verbal communication at all during her entire encounter. She could understand solely through telepathic communications. He, or the creature, gestured and directed her to a small table that looked much like an ironing board coming out of the wall. The table was long and narrow and unsupported underneath, much like one of those fold-out ironing boards you see in everyday homes. So she was instructed to go onto the table. However, this is where she disagreed and fought the suggestion. But they forced their will onto her by merely placing a hand on the young girl, and Charlotte got onto the table against her own will. Then they examined her. They took a scraping from her arm and they inserted a probe at about her navel, a probe that looked like a very long needle. Wow. Hmm. Mm, Freaky. Yeah. So this was all from her firsthand account as recorded on CBC's Morningside with Peter Grosky, like we aforementioned. So at this point, her voice, like you mentioned this in the notes here, it starts to crack. She seems to get a little bit emotional or stressed out about telling this particular narrative especially as soon as she gets into the craft so that to me that does kind of speak to a real trauma event something that the victim is almost trying to block out perhaps yeah because she started off telling it as if it was like more of an ambivalent experience but then and she sort of finishes it off that way too Mm -hmm. but at the same time yeah it's clear from her inflection and the way she's speaking that it's it's definitely it affects is. her at one point she even says like in her nine-year-old mind she thought she was gonna die so that's, that's pretty traumatic definitely yeah i mean yeah and i mean she goes on to say that you know she was afraid to go past that area after that mm-hmm. rightfully so mm-hmm. and then what's interesting too and i guess this happens a lot of the time with abductees and just ufos in general that the memories come later on right so mm-hmm. as she's 
living in the same area. They keep coming back and they were separate between outside and inside the craft, which I thought was kind of interesting. We'll get into that in a sec. But, okay, so Charlotte remembers how a burr-like metal piece was inserted up into the the membranes behind her nose. Lovely, right? They said it would be easier to make contact again by doing this. So obvious intentions of another visit, another abduction. Charlotte thought she was going to die. The sheer noise and feeling of the burr being implanted into her nose was unbearable. The interviewer, CBC's Peter Zosky, asks, was this an unpleasant experience? This is what he asked her. And I'm thinking to myself when I was listening to that, that interview, I'm like, that's kind of an offensive thing to ask a little bit. It just seems like your classic sort of ignorant uh, radio host. <laughs> he was he was very skeptical the entire time. He was, right? and you know, I think he had to play that role a little bit because he had Charlotte on an abductee, and then he also had two UFO uh, proponents on the show as well. And we're going to get into those two individuals um, a little bit later in the episode, but. I think he kind of had to play the skeptical role, right? If they're all talking from this one perspective of staunch believer, then that doesn't really make for good radio either. No, no, not at all. I I don't think. But there's a difference between being skeptical, respectively, like being respectful. (laughs) Respectacles. Yeah. What what would be the combination (laughs) word there? Something like that. Yeah. It's totally a frond. Um, Yeah. Anyway, no, he he just, yeah, he was almost poking fun I found at Mm -hmm. times um anyway but to continue on here so this burr-like object was implanted using what she described as a slender needle nose plier-like instrument so she described how she was how actually later on she sneezed it out of her nose one day so this was significantly later on and she kept it so she kept it in a small box and she described it as a calcified burr so it's got that we would all recognize that, like when you like metal in the bathroom or whatever, she, calcified. She did make the um, comparison to something that had a lot of hard water buildup on it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Well, it, it makes sense, right? If something's in the body, it will be uh, kind of encased in like either proteins or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like even I remember after my surgery, those uh, those stitches that didn't quite come out, they, they, were, <laughs> they were covered in like a weird... Like, it's like there are little balls inside. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lovely. So I get that. What Mm -hmm. is interesting about that, though, to try to dissect it a tiny bit, is that the idea of it being calcified makes me think, like, whatever this object was made out of sounds like it would have, even if it's not from this earth, it's similar material. Like, it's a terrestrial-like metal that will calcify. It's not like a foreign, uh, unknown substance that... True. Wouldn't rust or something like that. Oh, that's true. And then also for it to not be considered like a poison to the body, unless right. that's really what the body was doing. It was rejecting it and it just slowly was pushing it, pushing it, pushing it out from those membranes where it was deeply embedded. Yeah. And then eventually, because she said she had a really bad cold and she was like, you know, just like constantly sneezing. And then that's when it came out. Yeah. And so she decided to put it in this little box, her little jewelry box. And then she was kind of like, uh, not cavalier about it, but a little more casual. Where she's like, oh, I have no idea where it is now. Like, I've got three kids at home. My home's like kind of a mess all the time. They're always going into my jewelry. Like, you know, I... <laughs> As a little girl, I remember doing that to my mom, going into all of her little trinkets and treasure boxes and, and going and rifling through them all. So I'm not totally. surprised that this thing would have been lost over the years. Totally. And it is unfortunate, but at the same time, it's, it's, it is reasonable to a certain extent. Oh, I, I think. think it's completely reasonable because the flip side of it is like you could tell like the interviewer Zosky is like being like, 
oh, like, and kind of like, oh, you don't have it anymore. Like you didn't really make an effort to make sure that that was kept and later mm-hmm. on, later analyzed. But the reason yeah. she was doing this interview under the name Charlotte Brown is not because she personally was like embarrassed or anything like this, but it was because she wanted to kind of protect her family is what she said. Yeah. So she was doing it anonymously. So that kind of ties into that, like, you're going to keep the burr, that's great, but you're not going to go to full lengths to protect it necessarily because this isn't like the centerpiece of your life. You're not going to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what this thing is. She she went on mm-hmm. living. She went on living. That to me sounds yep. realistic. Exactly. She wasn't a Whitley Strieber, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She wasn't, yeah, right. She didn't get sucked in, but mm-hmm. I get that, right? She probably wanted to just leave it behind, leave it in the past. Like, it was something that wasn't pleasant, so. But anyways. Right. It's very interesting because Charlotte's first encounter lasted approximately three hours. When she returned home or when she remembered returning home, it was 10 past two in the morning. (laughs) So that's quite a long time. Yeah, it is. For a nine-year-old girl to be out of bed in the middle of the night. But this wasn't a one-time encounter for Charlotte. And she would come to have a similar experience about six years later at the time when she was 15 years old. Except there was a difference. This happened in the daytime. Strange. So very strange. And it's going to be significant when we start talking about theories. Okay. So this time Charlotte was on her way home from a half day of school. They had an early let out. And so she was, you know, casually walking past the same area that she had her first encounter. When she noticed a craft about 300 yards away from the original location. It was set down, and there was a being outside of it. She saw it was wearing white coveralls that covered its head, too. Almost like what that reminds me of is a beekeeper. Yeah, <laughs> I was, totally. was kind of thinking, but you're 15 years old. You're not going to mistake a beekeeper for an alien. <laughs> and no. not to mention, this being was about four foot three. So quite small. A lot smaller than her at the age of 15. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... This is where it gets vague, but essentially what Charlotte remembers is that she was taken into the craft again. She has blanked out much of what has happened inside the craft, and she related to CBC Morningside host Peter Gwalski how she remembers the exterior, but nothing from the interior, which I would kind of take to be like a form of psychic blocking. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So that was her second encounter. Same location, roughly, right? Middle of the day. Middle of the day. And, I mean, this is back in, like, her first one was in the 40s, so, you know, she's 15. It's not that much further later, right? Early 60s now. And uh, no other witnesses that we know of. Middle of the day. But, I mean, this is kind of... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, anyways, yeah, it's kind of interesting because Charlotte's case and her encounters with these beings actually mirrors that of hundreds of individual cases of abduction. And this is supported by uh, two individuals that were on the show with her, the CBC Morningside show. The first one was uh, physicist and ufologist Stanton Friedman. Right. Very highly respected individual. Mm -hmm. By no means a crackpot. And then we also have Bud Hopkins, who appeared on the show. That's right. He's also a very prominent ufologist, and he's an artist. I believe he resides somewhere in New York. I'm not sure, though. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I find interesting about this, too, because like during this interview, we're talking about the craft, we're talking about her experience, and she describes the height of these creatures. But to me, I'm trying to wrap my head around because, I mean, we're we're not hardcore into the UFO world, but there's a lot of different types of extraterrestrials. At least that's what some people think, right? So what types of beings were they? 
if we're to go, I mean, if we're believing her story, right? And I, and I think it does sound quite believable and it parallels so many abduction cases. Mm-hmm, which is why she was kind of chosen for the exactly, show. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So in her story, she describes small creatures, right? So most likely the extraterrestrials known as greys. Now, there's two types, I guess. There's there's the tall greys and then the ones that are more like the ones Charlotte's describing, like four and a half feet tall. You know what they actually remind me of is uh, the Kentucky Goblins. Imme- I immediately mm-hmm. thought of that, too. A hundred percent. They totally do, right? They, it falls in line with the, cl- the quintessential, like, little green men yeah, totally. type, type like, perception. All we're missing is the cave with this case. <laughs> oh, man. Eh? I wonder. Well, hey, the first one near the Muskokas, there's some caves around there, I'll bet. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a goblin case. Maybe. Maybe this isn't a UFO case. Well, but there was a craft and there was, you know, the whole crazy abduction scenario. Interdimensional goblins. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. So the most common of all sightings and abductions, though, go are the greys. So most people who claim to have been abducted describe these same creatures that Charlotte is talking about. So this is according to a 1995 book that was then revised in 2005 called Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. And that's what also inspired that movie that came out... Um, I think it was right in around that mid two thousands, something like okay. that, with that... Mila Jovovich, yeah, up in Alaska, the classic um, owl, Ooh. owl in the window. We should do that for Film Friday. That would be fun. Who wrote that book? Do you know? Um. Oh man, I thought I had it there. <laughs> I'll pull it up. We'll pull it up. But okay, the Greys were not, however, a part of UFO culture, nor really was the idea of alien abduction a part of any mainstream anything until the nineteen sixties, though. Which I find interesting because, of course, Charlotte Brown's story is coming from 1947, her first experience, and then later on in the 1960s. So the phenomena really kind of became, what's the word, not popularized, but I guess that kind of goes with it because the 1950s was like sci-fi movie era. Mm -hmm. And that led into probably the most famous abduction case in the U.S., if not the world, and that's the Barney and Betty Hill case. And I just wanted to briefly bring, bring this up because obviously it deserves its own episode. It's a really significant case in UFOlogy. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was interesting in terms of timeline because this is the one that kicked off the abduction phenomena and what we're discussing came significantly earlier. I just find that interesting. Okay, cool. And like in this instance, there are definitely some differences between Charlotte. Like for them, they didn't, it was more like a, um, well, at first it was just a time slip. So they lost time, they were driving, it was at night, and to be honest, I'm not familiar with all the ins and outs of this case, but from what I gathered, it essentially was the case that they both lost time, they weren't sure what happened, they ended up in a completely different location, correct? Um, I can't remember if they arrived at their destination just at a wrong time, or if they, regardless, that you, you have it correct, they basically lost time as they were driving along the road, that hours and hours were missing, and when they were you know, came to or whatever, however you want to describe it, they felt filthy, Mm. like dirty, like they had been, yeah, violated. Yeah. (laughs) Have a shower. (laughs) Just (laughs) poor Barney and Betty. Of course, they were, you know, chucked under the bus by a lot of people made out to be crackpots, crazies. Well, why though? Because it's the 1960s. Um, No, no, no. But why would someone with a time slip... It wasn't until later, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I'm trying to prompt you right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, of course, later on, and this is controversial because with the help of a psychiatrist, they eventually revealed, you know, this startling story that these gray beings, again, so gray aliens with large eyes had walked them into a metallic disc 
Interesting. So we get um, suggestibility on the part of the aliens to the humans. They enter willingly, just like Charlotte did. Um, I will say, though, one discrepancy. Charlotte never said they were gray. She never described them as gray. No, she, she just describe described. No, she only described the the height, mm-hmm. and um, and then ju- that just sort of matches up with this the grays being the most commonly associated extraterrestrials with the abduction phenomena. Correct. Okay, so specifically abduction. Right. right, right. Um, and that's what Barney Those and nasty Betty. Grays. Well, they clearly have an interest. I mean, the reptilians are less interested, I suppose. <laughs> They're just looking to freak people out in the Flatwoods area. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> But, uh, okay, so they they go on to say, yeah, so a metallic disc about as wide as their house was long. I'm thinking, I mean, that's... That's about 30 feet, probably. Relatively the same size. Mm -hmm. Once inside, the beans examine the couple and erase their memories, only to be brought back with hypnosis. Okay. (laughs) Their experience would, of course, kick off an Air Force inquiry um, into UFOs, and this actually um, was the inception of Project Blue Book. Um, that investigated UFO sightings across the country. So, yeah, it became the first, you know, worldwide sort of publicized abduction account. But Charlotte Brown wouldn't have been a privy to this in the 40s, right? It hadn't happened yet. And then she was 15 years old when it happened in the 60s. Right. And Mm -hmm. so it's just unrelated, but very similar. Yeah. And like, you, you are right. Yeah. So it was so early with Charlotte. Like, obviously, 1947 was a huge year for unknown aerial phenomena and the crash at Roswell and all sorts of weird encounters and close encounters. None of which, none of which really, well, they're not really abduction scenarios. Like, was the Falcon Lake, was that the same year too? That was an abduction. But no, that was Fal- just like... Falcon Lake was in the 60s. Oh, so Fal- was sorry, in, sorry, sorry. I think it was 67. Okay, I up with someone else. Yeah, so the only reference that she really would have had would have come from the 19, I believe it was 1935, um, the Orson Welles, War yeah. of the Worlds. Yeah, that's that right. lit up the world. Man. <laughs> so it's not as if um, aliens were an unknown phenomena. No, no, not completely. But at the same time, she was quite young. So she would have had very little consciousness of something to that effect, right? That <laughs> happened over a decade, over a decade before. So she wouldn't even been alive. She would have had someone have to like... Replay it or exactly. talk about it or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Which I don't know if that was really big news in Muskoka, Ontario. Yeah. It makes you wonder. I, I mean, wh- where did that actual broadcast come out of? It was like New York. Oh, actually, now I'm thinking, was that just for American audiences? I think so. Well, I mean, radio, it would have been picked up across the border too. I guess. It's like, Ontario. Yeah. So yeah. Uh-huh. I'm actually not sure about the whole, the, Interesting, the, the breadth of the stretch of that. Maybe it'd be fun to cover that <laughs> as like a historical episode just to be like oh. the, the pandemonium of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. That'd be a fun history one to do. You know, we could even tie that into a film Friday too and do War of the Worlds, like the original okay. War of the Worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was such a funny video. Yeah, it was. I love that movie. Definitely. Uh, it's so different from the the remake, but awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Far different from the remake. Wasn't isn't Tom Cruise in the remake? Yeah, mm. Dakota Fanning too. Well, what do you know? <laughs> so, okay, to kind of continue to build on Charlotte's story and try to corroborate it a little bit here, I pulled up a few. I just was googling around and trying to search like the Muskoka area for UFO sightings, right? Cool, because that's when the first one happened. And, uh, or they both happened in the same location, but, um, yeah, Muskoka. So this is, um, well, we've never been out there. (laughs) Ontario, this is a vacationing area for people, quite wealthy area nowadays in Ontario. 
um, cottages and cabins, lots of lakes and water. So it's the perfect area for UFOs. Yeah, water and UFOs go hand in hand. Definitely. And not to my surprise at all, there are hundreds and hundreds of UFO sightings that happen in the area of the Muskokas. And uh, yeah, this has been happening for a long time. I pulled a couple to share with you guys that I just thought were interesting. For example, uh, one of them came from 1978. There was a strange sighting when there was a couple um, just hanging out on their dock, uh, the dock of their Muskoka cottage. So this was in the middle of the day as well. So that's why I thought it was interesting. Okay. Same as Charlotte Brown. Hmm. So... This is a direct quote from uh, them. There was no names with this story, but all of a sudden, so they're laying on the dock. All of a sudden, we hear a very faint whirring sound, like behind and overhead. We both looked up above the cottage roof, where it originated from at the same time. What we saw there was a large silver object, which appeared to be perfectly round, beaming some kind of light on us. So like a spotlight. That sounds like a helicopter or it's something like spotlighting, beam. you know. They weren't tractored up in a beam, but they continue to go on to say, okay, our jaws dropped and we simply sat there frozen, stunned and terrified for a few seconds, which was how long it took uh, to receive what they described as a silent communication telling them that, quote, you're afraid. Weird. That's ominous. What if, I wonder if maybe they like had some sort of um, infrasound encounter too to make them feel that internal terror as well. Obviously, if you're seeing something flying above you, you're going to be pretty terrified. But but that, no, that whirring sound yeah. and some sort of an infrasound, that could make, yeah, mm-hmm. you're afraid and yeah. you just think that in your head. Okay. Then the object took off upward, so perfectly straight up, resembling what... I, the guy who's talking, could describe loosely compare to the roadrunner in those old cartoons when he's under a chase and just disappears instantly. Beep, beep. You know, like you guys remember Looney Tunes and it's just like, it's just that line and he's gone. (laughs) And that is very classic with UFOs. And I've seen, I've personally seen orb-like things in and around the area of Christina Lake that have mm. moved in that type of non-ballistic motion. Oh, and totally. Very weird. Oh, and even with Charlie Red Star, right, of Manitoba, we had that very right. similar um, sort of behavior. Right, right. Okay, so he compares it to the Roadrunner, and then he continues on, and uh, ended up way beyond the mountains on the horizon just in a matter of seconds. So only mm. now it was, uh, what does he say? It was a... Uh, <laughs> Who knows how many miles directly above our heads it moved, basically, he goes on to say. I'm not even going to finish this. That's essentially it. He he lay awake at night, half expecting, quote, little green men to come knocking at his door for the remainder of their stay at the cottage. Well, this is interesting. He says here, um, so basically he called that, you know, like when it just dashed away from them, he said it was like kind of like a hyperspace move, seemingly. And then he says it did a slow rectangular trajectory, then disappeared behind a cloud which ufos are very known to do Hmm. and then and then he said what they witnessed next through the clouds was a huge mass of light moving up into the northeastern sky right okay so that is it's pretty epic thank you for finishing that yeah Mm -hmm. and that almost makes it sound like a reconnaissance vehicle or something right totally because it's like these ones like betty and barney hill charlotte brown these guys here they're describing something smaller and then it goes up into something bigger, presumably. Yeah, because he he even said in the account that he thought perhaps it had joined up with something else. Another alternative explanation I could think of is, what if it was entering through a portal? Very mm. much like, you know, like Skinwalker Ranch again, hey? Yeah. Where they would see in the in the dark sky, they would see all of a sudden this like 
this aperture up here and widen, and it would almost look like daylight through the opening. So maybe it was something to that effect. Maybe. I like I like this story a lot, though. There's a lot going on. I like the cloud element. It really reminds me of Charlie Resdark. Oh, absolutely, yeah. All the pilots and their accounts of how they were basically kind of teased and taunted by these weird aerial, like, balls. They were like silver balls, they were described yeah, as. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So much smaller, seemingly, than this object. But silver, a lot of similarities, a lot of crossover. And some crossover, too, to Clarenville, a little bit, with the massive object being thought to be a cloud. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. you know. Oh, exactly, yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, the idea of it being uh, reconnaissance, right? Because there is no abduction. There's, like, you know, they were kind of almost targeted, seemingly, right? Because they had the, the beam of light shining down on them. Who knows if they were actually maybe the targets are not, or maybe it was just a, a chance encounter that they witnessed. Because again, we're talking about Muskoka. And like you mentioned, right? Like this is the vacation part of Ontario. This yep. is on the Great Lakes. Yeah. It's so right it, in that it, neck. It's not in the Great Lakes Triangle. We talked about in our other episode with like Lake Michigan. Um, but this is on Lake Huron. Right. So right by the Algonquin Provincial Park. It's kind of tucked away in a a little bay, well, looks little on Google Maps. I'm sure it's massive. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Looks um, little on Google Maps. It yeah. does. I'm zoomed out quite a bit. Yeah. It's right by Toronto, actually, not too far away. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that is the the, the little hop, skip, and a junk, 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 jump <laughs> vacation spot. That's like where Kevin O'Leary's got his uh, his really? vacation place and all that jazz. I'm sure there's <laughs> some Toronto Raptors with their uh, vacation places oh, out there, neat. too. <laughs> but then there's also similarities to Charlotte Brown's story, too, right? Obviously, we don't get the abduction part, but there is this sort of telepathic communication at one point where they were told, you're afraid, which is kind of weird. It's very simple. Hey, that message reminds me of they live. (laughs) It does. Well, it makes you wonder if it was like they were about to be abducted or something. Like it was an Mm. abandoned abduction or something like that. Just like the Betty and Barney Hill scenario. Right. Hmm. Potentially. Yeah. And there was also, like we said already, similar craft, similar description of the size, except with Charlotte's description, she didn't really include the color or the shape. She just said it was approximately 30 by 30, which could be a number of things. It could be right. the cigar shape. It could be the classic saucer. It could be something else. A few else. different things. She sure. didn't mention a pyramid. I think she would have said a pyramid if it was a pyramid. That's pretty distinctive. I think you're <laughs> going to mention that, right? <laughs> you know, I added this in here just to kind of give context with UFO sightings in general in Canada. Like we were talking about Muskokas and all that, but there's, there's tons, right? So there's a Winnipeg group based group that tracks UFO sightings across the country. And this is a little bit old, but as of 2008, there was a 25% increase from the year before in Ontario and British Columbia, which are the hotspots for Canada. So mm. East and West coast closest to the ocean. I guess that makes sense. Um, the reporting in that year was 334 in Ontario and 272 in BC, respectively. Those are just what were officially reported and recorded. Okay. Prince Edward Island uh, had only a couple and uh, Nunavut and the Northwest Territories had no official reported uh, UFOs. No official. Official. Hmm. Right. But what were people really seeing in the skies? Exactly. We'll never know. So, yeah. Frequent and common. <laughs> Frequent and common. Well, maybe we should get into some of the evolution of UFO sightings and abduction sightings <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> Don't make it sound too enticing there, Amber. <laughs> we're getting into the educational zone of this oh, episode today. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but after the war, because we are picking this up in 1947, correct? So... This is where Charlotte's story began, and this is where a lot of UFO phenomena began, too. And it was kind of interesting, because after the war, Canadians were still kind of glued to the skies, so to speak. 
And these were for reasons of fear, such as watching for enemy aircraft. Yeah. There was real threats of, even in BC, right, in the trail area, because we had um, we had factories that were producing armaments and all sorts of supplies for the war. So we were very, very scared out here in BC. And then I would imagine in Ontario as well, they would have had their own facilities. Oh, and also in uh, Manitoba, I believe it was quite strategic. There yes, too. it was. Yep. So there's lots going on. So people were quite paranoid, even though the war was over. And people were still conscious of the possibility of an attack due to this new threat of the looming Cold War. Right. Yes. As a result, the Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, along with the National Defense Force, um, they actually received regular reports of UFOs. And they actually launched, we referenced this during our Patreon episode of Charlie Radstar, how at one point, I believe it was in either the 60s or the 70s, the government of Canada established an outpost in, in Manitoba to actually watch for, they had all sorts of measurements and different devices yep. to kind of watch for signs of unknown aircraft. And obviously this had to do with the Cold War, but it also had to do with all these reports of unidentified flying objects. Yeah. And people yeah. wondering, and of course, I mean, imagine what that would have been like during the Cold War era. You mm-hmm. would have been thinking like, damn, the Russians are on top of this. Right? They got some recon vehicles. Like, Oh, yeah. So it would have been terrified, terrifying, I should say. And so this was actually a really real thing. Like the Department of National Defense and other Canadian government agencies began collecting information on this phenomena. Yeah. Which is really interesting. It is. And then continue to do so. They do. Yes. <clears throat> So I thought that was kind of interesting. I also wanted to touch on a little bit of like these patterns of abduction as sort of another sort of interesting note. And this in particular, I want to dive into physical evidence. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's get back to the abduction. For yeah, sure. exactly. Because with Charlotte Brown, we do get um, inclusion of a burr-like material that was implanted into her. Yeah. She does say at one point um, in the story with Peter... She says that she had scrapings on her legs and everything when she returned, they were, she couldn't explain them. They have since disappeared. You know, it's not like they were like deep gashes or anything like that, but those are very common scoop marks and, and gashes or not gashes, but scars, like big, long lines. That's right. All these are (laughs) pretty, um, widely reported. However, (laughs) I I pulled this up here. There was, um, Nova, Nova is like a, a, a production studio And they, back in the 1990s, they were trying to make a film called Kidnapped by UFOs, question mark. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yes. And they said at one point, this was a quote from the website here, as they were making this film, one of the trickiest decisions for the film has been how to deal with the alleged physical evidence surrounding abductions. And they say here, abduction proponents frequently point to such physical evidence, such as photographs of, quote, ground traces left by UFOs, or most commonly, reports of strange scars or scoop marks on the bodies of abductees. When examined more closely, these so-called ground traces are usually just a commonly occurring fungus. The scars and scoop marks appear to be quite ordinary and likely the result of everyday injuries or traumas, end quote. And (laughs) do do you have any comments on that one? (laughs) Yeah. um, First of all, well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, and like, First of all. well, no, I, yeah, I, I, I get where people are coming, where they're coming from with that statement. Skeptical perspective. Skeptical, and mm-hmm. that's important. There's parts that can't be, they're not equal. Like, for example, a scoop mark 
is not something that just happens to you if you no. scrape or fall or something that's like, like that. That reminds me, it's a, that's like a biopsy. Yes, right? that's exactly what it is. So unless you just went for one or you did one your, on yourself, which I guess is possible, yeah, but it's like you'd have to, you, you would have to assume that, and that's just it. I mean, obviously some of these people are crackpots. Some people are making this stuff up or they just believe it's real and it's not. It can't be 100% of them. Well, that's we'll get not, into the psychology of all that too okay. in this episode, yeah. Um, I will go on to include this other quote from Nova as well. And they said here, quote, one MIT physicist, which they do not name, Mm. um, who is a fervent proponent in alien abductions and in the process of, or sorry, and in the process of scientific inquiry. So a believer in scientific inquiry and in alien abductions, he, this person, which is unnamed, (laughs) has confirmed, confirmed that there is not one single independently confirmed piece of scientific evidence for an alien abduction. Not one. When pressed further, most proponents themselves back off the importance of such, quote, conventional data and point instead to what they refer to as real evidence for abductions. That is, the similarities in the stories themselves and in the sincerity and emotionality in which they are told. This, then, is the true heart of the alien abduction phenomena and the focus of their documentary. Hmm, so it's psychological is what they're basically yes, saying. they are kind of saying that. But, um, so what do you make of that? Well, I just find it kind of interesting that, I mean, you you say I'm a proponent in the alien abduction phenomena mm-hmm. and in the scientific process, scientific inquiry. Yeah. There's physical evidence on a lot of these people. There's trace evidence. Well, exactly. And there's trace evidence from other cases that don't involve abduction and just involve sightings and, and, and craft making contact, mm-hmm. whether it's Falcon Lake or whatever it may be. Yes. Those yeah. those are those are things that can be independently confirmed to a certain point because yes. it's just a he said, she said. Do you exactly. believe it or not? Mm-hmm. Unless it's like recorded in those reports from, say, like the, the National Defense of Canada or wherever, right? Then to me, it really annoys me that they don't name this person. And it does annoy me that sort of, yeah, that flip-flopping sort of aspect. I do understand their perspective, though, and trying to be skeptical and trying to go about this in a level-headed way. But at the same time, they're, they're, they're dismissive a little bit. Um, going back to the whole, like the CBC Morningside edition that we both listened to a few times, Bud Hopkins in particular describes how he has worked with over 120 abductees and how the markings described by Charlotte and by many of these other people are razor thin straight cuts or they're scoops, like rounded. Like an ice cream scoop. Exactly. Approximately three-eighths in diameter on average, and they're usually out of the leg area. So super tiny. Which is weird. Yeah, exactly. So very small, but they're very distinctive. And he at one point claimed to have an x-ray image of someone's implant in their head, I believe. It was like behind their eye. Really? I haven't been able to find any photographs of that, though, or any other confirmation. But I did see that referenced in a few little articles and tidbits about bud <laughs> all right well we'll, we'll work on that yeah so that was one thing so the the ground fungus again that's another one that is referenced and oh it is totally escaping me now but i'm having this flashback to an astonishing legends episode where they covered again it was um it was a ufo sighting or a orb sighting or something like that I remember the family and their farm and then there was a big ring oh the delphus oh, ring. The Delphus ring yeah, yeah the delphus ring 
So that's one that could maybe be explained, or some people would try to explain away as a terrestrially occurring fungus, like a naturally occurring fungus. I can't remember what the conclusion was on that episode, though. We should probably go and re-listen to that one, eh? Yeah, that one was a couple of years ago. I'd have to go back, but... Um, that was a fun one. Mm-hmm. It definitely was. Shout yeah. out to Scott and Forrest. What's up, Scotty, guys? Scotty, Forrest. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, yeah. So I just wanted to mention some of these physical things, like the implants. Again, let's get into that. Okay. Because many of these victims come forth with the notion that something has been embedded with them, or into them, sorry, whether for tracking or communication or just... Uh, Data collection? Exactly. Like, so they're, <laughs> like, think, taking the vitals of the person or something? That in these days, though, I feel like aliens probably don't need to do that. They just need to infiltrate our cell phones. <laughs> can, no kidding, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, a lot of people claim to have these implants placed near the head. A lot of them, um, as described by Bud Hopkins on the CBC show, usually behind the ear or behind the eye, like the um, the, oh, man, the orbital... Ugh. Or is orbital socket, is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, or like Charlotte, behind the nasal cavity. It's all cringeworthy. Very cringe. All of it's cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, oh, actually, this is funny. Nova referenced, so that same website that was making the documentary, they referenced Bud Hopkins, and they even, they referenced his x-ray of a nasal implant. So it wasn't behind that, it was a nasal implant. Right, right, okay. So <laughs> they go on to say that in interviews and in writing, um, they offered several abduction proponents the opportunity to have Nova hire independent scientists to perform physical um, examinations and to examine physical evidence. And he, this went as far as being MRIs and other radiological tests with the, uh, obviously with the supervision of a physician, just to look at these cases of alleged nasal implants. Mm-hmm. But they claim they were not taken up on their offer, and it was further suggested that the aliens are too smart to let such evidence fall into their hands. All right. So that sounds very, very paranoid to me. You know what I mean? That's just like, oh, they're okay. For me, when people say that, if they're a believer in this phenomena, but then they say, oh, well, th- we're never going to find the evidence because they're just too smart for us. That to me That's is garbage. Gar- it is garbage. Yes. Garbage. What was that guy's name searching for the Ark? That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. I found it, but I can't show it. Sorry, so guys. My question to those people is then why the hell are you even pursuing this? Right? What's Th- the point if they're exactly. going to outsmart you at every turn? And that, to me, is the fundamental difference between the way Charlotte Brown was telling her story and talking about her story, Hmm. right? So it's kind of the same in the sense like, oh, I I saved the burr, like I sneezed it out, I saved it in a box decades ago, and now we're having this conversation and I've misplaced it. That's not the same as denying, like, or being like, no, no, I'm not going to be tested. I can't do an MRI. Not doing that. She, yeah, she was a lot more level-headed, I think, about it and not, she doesn't fall into that paranoid camp. I don't think she's making it up. Whether it happened to her or not is up to speculation, but she's Mm -hmm. not making it up. And that's where we get into one of those interesting sort of the spectrum of belief in this, right? In ufology and also in the abduction phenomena. Right, yeah. (laughs) And there's a lot of different opinions on this. So we're going to get into a few um, prominent figures of ufology and their varying positions on the alien abduction phenomena, which is by no means exhaustive this list. I just pulled up a few names that were very notable. Definitely notable, for yeah. sure. This guy's name is notable. <laughs> so we're going to start with um, R. Leo Sprinkle. Oh, the Sprinkle. Sprinkly. Anyways, he was a <laughs> University of Wyoming psychologist. 
who received his master's and sorry, his bachelor's and his master's from the University of Colorado. And then he also completed his doctorate um, in counseling psychology at the University of Missouri in 1961. So it was in the 1960s that Sprinkle became interested in the abduction phenomena. And he's kind of best known for these annual conferences that he would hold. Um, And he organized them on behalf of UFO contactees. And it would occur every summer since the 1980s. So he was very dedicated. Wow, He definitely. was very sympathetic. He corresponded with many individuals who claimed to either have friendly contact with entities or have just experiences with saucers. And this guy was special because unlike most professors, he wasn't really dismissive. He was accepting. Okay. He's like a molder. <laughs> we need more of those. We kind of do. So um, he actually held these conferences that were sponsored by the Institute of UFO Contactee Studies, which I'm not sure if he actually founded that or not. But essentially, this was like described as a non-judgmental environment, um, an open forum, so to speak, for these people to tell their stories and to kind of gather these accounts, which is very interesting. And Sprinkle is one of those people that was very convinced of the phenomena's actuality. And he actually was the first to suggest the link between abductions and cattle mutilation. Okay. Very interesting, yeah. right? So that's interesting. And then, um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this guy maybe had a few loose screws. He eventually came to believe that he was abducted himself in his childhood. And eventually, he wasn't working for the university anymore. It was 1989. He was got pushed out. He did was he? kind of fired, or yeah, let go. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So he kind of lost his marbles a little bit. Maybe. I don't want. I don't want to say that. I don't want to give Sprinkle the not the benefit of the doubt. Well, it's but tough to say. I mean, it's tough, right? He could have just been pushed out, and all of this was real. It's politics, right? And you're in academia, and it's cutthroat. It's all about perception. Until you hit tenure, you can't say nothing. Exactly. And there was another really important person, Johnny Mack, and we'll get into him in just a second here, but he had a very similar encounter with um, academia. Okay. Interesting. There was another gentleman that's, uh, he recently passed away. I don't know if it was just last year or, um, but uh, Stanton Friedman, a lot of people in the UFO world will obviously know that name. Mm -hmm. And he was a part of the Morningside interview with Charlotte Brown. He's from New Brunswick, a nuclear physicist by training, but has been investigating UFOs for, well, had been, he's passed away since, but for, since the 1950s, right? Since it's uh, the heyday, the heyday of UFOs. Hmm. So he's, and he's considered to be one of the most knowledgeable, credible people in the UFO, UFO field. He was an interesting guy in that interview. Um, you know, like Bud Hopkins has talked to hundreds of different people who have experienced this type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he makes the comment about how some of these people are, you know, you know, they're, they're PhD researchers like him, they're doctors and, and things like that. Of course, Zosky goes on to say like, well, that's not proof of anything just because somebody has some sort of credentials. And he's totally right. And I think to that, um, that guy who was running for president last last round and he was like a brain surgeon or something i can't remember his name but he's total oh, crackpot no. just yeah. a loon but uh <laughs> so yeah no it doesn't it's not proof of anything but at the same time with the exception of some that are loons when you have titles like that when you are in you know when you've accomplished the things you've accomplished it means something to potentially chuck it all out the window just to say hey i was abducted by aliens or i experienced this and you lose friends and you lose family members don't talk to you and right Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like an odd way to get attention to me, personally. I just... Yeah. You mean, sorry, you're talking about... When, uh, I'm talking about when Friedman was mentioning how guys he had... Men and women he had interviewed were like, you know, 
maybe not the same as Charlotte Brown, but were, you know, high ups in society, so to say, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. He was the one that kind of touched on the whole psychological element, and he made the comment that, um, oh, I have, a, I have a further down here, so maybe I'll just wait for that part. But yeah, sure. he, he did make some comments about how, like, basically these people don't fit the um, paranoid schizophrenic segment of the population. They're not, they don't really seem to be um, cohesive with that. No. Yeah. No. So he was a little bit more um, credible, right? Because he didn't just study UFOs. He studied a lot of different things. And UFOlogy just became one of those things that he encountered later on. Well, not later on, quite early in his career. But he just kind of, he was able to float by, which is interesting for me, right? To see people able to do that in the intellectual field and, and working right. in universities and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that this guy was a nuclear physicist is kind of insane too, right? Like, yeah, it's interesting, right? Because then he he was known as, well, he has this moniker, the father of Roswell, because he was the first civilian investigator of that incident hmm. and was a staunch supporter of the idea that there was a, a military cover-up oh, at Roswell, right? Interesting. So and, the human element. Is and that there. story of it has, of course, been, it's the most cliche, quintessential, well-known, like, it's been, it's, it's been so, like, pushed through the Hollywood, like, strainer you know oh, what i mean yeah. that it's like it's completely unbelievable at this point exactly yeah there's so many layers of uh bullshit I guess, basically I yeah and that's actually interesting that you say that there was the cover-up because um like like friedman hopkins was kind of a proponent of the cover-up sort of thing as well yes he was so hopkins is an interesting character bud um again right he was in the morningside cbc radio show featuring charlotte brown and he is no longer with us as well. He passed away in um, August of nine, or sorry, of 2011 in okay. Manhattan. Mm. He was um, a New York resident, and he was also an American painter, sculptor, and again, right, very prominent in UFO research and the alien abduction phenomena. So in 1989, Hopkins actually formed the Intruders Foundation of Manhattan, which was um, there to support abductees and to also conduct research and investigations while promoting public awareness of the UFO abduction phenomena. So this organization actually became inactive after his death. I will mention also that he was a member of NICAP, which we came across, I believe, I believe, I, I could be misquoting this, but I think it was Skinwalker Ranch we came across this. And that's just the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which is now defunct. No longer operational. Right. That's right. Yeah. So he was a part of a lot of different things. He wrote several books. He is the author of the book Intruders, which was published in the same area of literature as Whitley Strieber's Communion. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that. Yes. He formed um, a lot of what is now sort of the collective unconscious of uh, of what we believe in aliens and things like that. Or not believe, but like, you know, general perceptions and all that type of thing. They are a huge part of the discourse, both of these guys. Yes. And so the main interesting thing was that Hopkins supposedly experienced his own daytime sighting of a UFO. He had two other witnesses, not sure who they are. I never really floated up to the, bubbled up to the surface of mm, research okay, here. Okay. But um, this did... Um, Give, okay, so he, essentially he decided after this happened to him, he wanted to investigate this. He received a very, quote-unquote, unsatisfactory explanation from the local air base. So after this, Hopkins firmly believed that a conspiracy and or cover-up was in place to prevent the public from being aware of the existence of UFOs. So, yeah, very interesting character. He was kind of more... 
I w- I'm not going to say that he was like a, a conspiracy. Like he was a conspiracy believer to a certain extent, but maybe not to the extent of other people per se, where they go a lot further, where there's like, um, there's like a, a secret society of aliens and humans working together to take over the world. We'll get into someone, uh, actually David M. Jacobs is more along those lines. Maybe not, maybe not the partnership of humans and aliens, but he basically thinks that aliens are trying to take over the world. Um, and that they, does he... Does he believe that they walk amongst us? Is he one of those ones? David M. Jacobs? Yeah. I think so. Okay. Yeah. That was so, a, that was an interesting thing posted in the Straight Up Strange forum the other day, this idea that <laughs> that there's, I don't know if it was a hybrid question, but it, that there, that there's oh. basically almost like the, the Nordics, I think mm. would be like where they're just tall, <gasps> tall blondes. They look like humans, but or, they're not. Oh, that's a good one. Or, you know, I was just watching Forensic Files the other day and they mentioned how about 20% of the human population are what's known as non-secretors meaning they do not secrete their dna um enzyme or not enzyme <laughs> that's totally wrong thing but their dna doesn't come out in their fluids maybe what? they're aliens man maybe they're aliens how Anyways, is that a thing i don't know but it's so there's like there's no dna in your blood is that you're saying exactly that's bizarre it was this rape and murder case that i was looking into <laughs> good times good times. yeah but anyways they the, the guy Oh, anyways, he almost got away with it, but he didn't. Ah, they never they do. got it. Was it over a $40 life insurance policy? No. <laughs> he was just a weirdo. He ended up killing someone who worked in a, uh, a dry cleaners. It was uh, a, a woman. Whenever we, wa- whenever we watch that show, I'm surprised people don't murder their spouse over like a box of like ketchup packets or something. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. There is. Yeah. There was one where someone was murdered over a ham radio. Is that what you just said over there? <laughs> A ham radio. A ham radio. It was ridiculous. He sent him a bomb in the mail. Not even a ham radio, a ham and a radio. <laughs> Anyways, let's get back to this. All right. Uh, one other fun fact about um, Hopkins is that he did experience Orson Welles' horror of the War of the World's radio play. Oh, sorry. I misquoted um, that. It was actually 1938 that that play okay. took place. Right yeah. before the war. That makes sense. I do remember that now. Duh. Anyways. Um, yeah, so he, he basically was very traumatized and he described how after that occurred, he was a lot more skeptical about alien invasions than ever before. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But he was very young too. Like he was born in 1931. So he was only seven at the time of that. Yeah. That's well, even younger than Charlotte Brown in her first, uh, abduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to, um, this jacobs character yeah let's do it i honestly didn't really know anything about this guy but apparently he had a a lot of ideas on this kind of thing so he actually had a phd from the university of wisconsin madison in 1973 and this was in the field of intellectual history okay he wrote his dissertation on the controversy of unidentified flying objects in america this is just the 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 wiki quote (laughs) here so essentially he it was published as a revised edition of this dissertation was published as the UFO controversy in America and it sold out, which is very unusual for an academic work. It, it was published in 1975. Which Crazy. Hot topic, right? Interesting. He's written over five books about this topic and he kind of, he, he's one of those weird, not, not weirdos. I'm not going to say that, but he purports that there are alien human hybrids that are engaged in this, covert operation of infiltration so a they live scenario right very much so Mm -hmm. yeah but the final goal is taking over earth yeah 
So they're quietly taking over. Quietly, because they can blend into human society. They cannot be differentiated from humans. The non-secretors. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that this is occurring worldwide. So. Um, All right. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well. (laughs) Pretty extreme, right? Super fun idea, um, I guess. I'm not if it was real. That'd be sort of scary. Actually, I kind of want to read that 1975 book. Me too. I wonder if Rob has it in his collection. Oh, I'm sure he does. Yeah. We could ask him. Our strange guys. Yeah. Shout, shout out. Shout out to our strange guys. Mm-hmm. Strange skies. Oh my God, I can't <laughs> talk today. That's, this guy's, I mean, this is like totally like a they live or or a uh, invasion of the body snatchers type thing. It's pretty out there. It is. That's pretty out there. I don't really know if I would, I should look into him a little bit more. I don't want to just write him off per se, but he seems to be one of the least serious, like, least believable figures maybe this has got to be where some of those later seasons of x-files were getting their inspiration from Actually, when they've got like the, the you know the bee colony and oh, they're totally. trying to hybridize yep. things and i mean th- yeah this is this is it and the whole scully pregnancy alien yep. baby thing 100 yep. totally well that's interesting that you bring up Mulder again because i feel like this next character john e mack is like almost the embodiment of Mulder. he operated through harvard his entire career so this guy, he was born in 1929. He died in 2004. It was very unfortunate, drunk driving, um, hit and run. Uh-huh. Left him dead on the side of the road. And he was an American. He, he was a psychiatrist. He was a writer. And he was a department head of the Harvard Medical School. Okay. It reminds me of Mulder in the sense that, like, Mulder was operating through the FBI. And yet he was like, you know, that I want to believe in <laughs> the yeah. alien proponent, that type of thing. Right. So as the head of psychiatry, um, he mostly dealt with child psychology and adolescent psychology. And he studied a lot of um, things related to the Cold War. So um, suicides of teenagers and depression of teenagers due to the like sort of looming threat of like nuclear holocaust, that type of thing. So in addition, he like later on in his years, like this was not his primary focus, but he became interested in the psychology of alien abduction experiences. And he was very skeptical like, he just wanted to know more. He was one of those, he was like yeah. us, right? Where it's like, he doesn't really come off as like, I want to believe per se, but at the same time, I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to gather the data and that type of thing and to sort of go both ends. Be skeptical, but to entertain the possibility. Absolutely. You have to. Yes. And so he, this did start relatively late in his career. He, he basically, this is a quote from him. He said, when I heard about this phenomena in the 1990s, I was very doubtful. I thought it must be some kind of mental illness is what he started from. This yep. was from his obituary from the Guardian. Uh, however, after many years of studying cases of abductees, he later said that his line with such cases was to be questioning and skeptical and that he considered alien or sorry, abduction phenomena an authentic mystery meriting more research. Definitely. So, of course, this guy undertook some professional scrutiny. <laughs> in 1994, the dean of uh, Harvard Medical School appointed um, basically an investigation. It was mounted on him to confidentially review his clinical care and investigation practices, uh, specifically with people who had shared their alien encounters with him. So they were kind of basically, it was the politics. They're going to come and bite him in the butt. Right. But... But after 14 months, they actually concluded, they were like, you know what? (laughs) Study whatever you want. (laughs) The dean reaffirmed his academic freedom to study whatever he wishes and to state his opinions without impediment. 
and that Dr. Mack remained a member in good standing at the Harvard Faculty of Medicine. <laughs> this was after, actually, it's kind of funny, because one of the drafts, the committee reports, said that to communicate in any way whatsoever with a person who has reported a, quote, close encounter with an extraterrestrial life form, and that this experience may well have been real, is professionally irresponsible. <laughs> so they were, like, trying to make him seem like a crackpot. Right. This guy was on his A-game. Like, he he was just one of those people that was probably just a little bit smarter than everyone else around him and was like, you know what? You fools. Like, you just you, you just don't have open minds. And it just reminds me of Mulder at every single turn of the X-Files, right? Because he's always doing that. He's always finding himself, like, facing an investigation or whatever, having to sit down and talk with Skinner and all the higher-ups and everything and somehow manages to get away with it all in the end. It's kind of crazy to think, mm-hmm. like, that you would push it aside to say... It's crazy when the reality is, is like, I guess it is just a kind of a protectionist thing, right? Like uh, something you don't understand. So push it, push totally. it away. Totally. Something that defies explanation. Right. And mm-hmm. science doesn't like that. Science no. doesn't like things that defy explanation, even though that's the entire purpose of the scientific process is to figure out. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah, that's really interesting stuff. It's um, the psychology of it all is definitely like, plays into most cases i feel like it's it's a i don't even know like what 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 do you think okay so yeah let's get into that the psychology because if you think about it right someone who is a person who identifies themselves as an abductee or someone that has experienced an abduction of sorts or even just an encounter of the close kind that type of thing doesn't that just (laughs) it, it automatically rings a little crazy but maybe not So, okay, like I mentioned earlier, Bud Hopkins said that this sort of fantasy is um, not one that is viable outside the paranoid population, yet these people do not appear to suffer from paranoia or from delusions or from mental illness by any means. Yeah. The the interesting thing about these fantasies, quote unquote, if you want to call them that, or stories or accounts, is that there is no glamour to these. It's not anything to do, it's, it's basically just a victim, victimization sort of scenario, right? Yeah. It's just horrifying. And it's always includes a, oh, just like, yeah, the worst things that you could possibly imagine. It's like, why would someone make that up? <laughs> it's well, it's always exactly, my question. Right? Exactly. And whether it's for attention, it's like, okay, are you going to go the classic route where it's like, any attention is good attention. doesn't matter if it's positive or negative or if people are criticizing you or supporting you or whatever. It's, it's, if. Like, you know, like the whole idea, if you're a public figure, you want to, um, you, you should be polarizing maybe. Right. But I don't think any of these people, these people don't fall under that. No. And I mean, and then, and then like in Charlotte Brown's case, I mean, it's an alias. It's, um, yeah, exactly. So protecting herself. And, and Stanton Friedman makes that comment in the interview that like over 90% didn't want to publish their names. Yeah. Yeah, because they're terrified. They're scared. Everyone, like even in the Charlie Red Star, remember that family? That was like kind of the centerpiece. They had so many um, experiences. And with Skinwalker Ranch, right, they changed their names. Everyone changes their names. They don't want to be known for this. No. So it's not not like an attention-whoring situation. Okay. And they do go on to say in the Morningside show that there were um, a full battery of psychological tests performed and administered by doctors um, on a group of 10 individuals who had reported encounters with aliens and abduction phenomena. So 
these tests were administered by doctors who are not aware of this sort of UFO component right. of these people's stories. Blind. So they're going in blind, which to me is interesting. So what they observed is that these individuals studied have shared deficits. They scored low in areas of self-esteem and self-image. They also exhibited a hesitancy to trust others and make commitments and also described a distrust of their own body and physicality. Many of these traits mimic patterns of a rape victim, someone who has been violated. So how do, so, and that's essentially what these experiences are. Yes. They all exhibit a great deal of shame about their experience. The idea that they're going to be ridiculed as well as embarrassed by their families or embarrass their families um, so it, it kind of eliminates this idea that they're doing it for the attention. It's not seen like, this doesn't seem like a legitimate reason to tell stories. It just attracts, like I said before, negative attention and, and will ultimately negatively affect your life. So unless you're spiraling and you've just got like, um, patterns of self, well, not self-harm, but like, you know, you're just uh, self-detrimental, that kind of thing. Right. They didn't mention anything like this about these people though. No. And I will just say, like, doesn't, this doesn't improve or doesn't prove that these experiences were real, but no. it does lend support to the idea that these these are real shared feelings, and they are they are common amongst all these victims. So that was kind of interesting to me. You know, and 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 uh, Peter Zosky asks Charlotte, "Do you think why you know why don't we see more more stories like this?" And he asked um, he asked all three of them. He asked all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, was it her that, I think it was no. her that responded? Or? No, it wasn't her. It was, I believe it was Bud Hopkins. Okay. And this was an interesting response it's to say that, quote, it's not news anymore. Not enough research going on. Uh, the government is aware, but doesn't have any answers. And that's something that's typical. We've talked about that. And that comes from Bud, right? Because he's kind of the conspiracy right. proponent. The the politics of uh, earthling global identity for people uh, is, is not good for business and not good for politics, right? Yeah. Um, nationalism is the name of the game. Mm-hmm. That's what's important for governments to control their populations, yeah. right? Keeping people divided serves national interests. <laughs> it sounds very conspiratorial, but it is it is very true, right? I mean, true. and you, you can look back in history to corroborate that, right? With the importance of propaganda and nationalism and making sure people are under your control. Yeah. And yeah, it's... Uh, but now, sense. now there is a lot of research going on. Now there is a lot of news about it nowadays. True. Um, there is. And it's funny because uh, coming from the same university, Harvard, we get another individual, uh, Dr. Rich McNally, who was a psychology professor, or is, sorry, I believe he's still alive. <laughs> and he was uh, conducting research over a period of a decade in order to determine whether there was any common psychological traits between those who identified themselves as alien abductees. And so he actually found that there were five commonalities expressed by these individuals. And I'm just going to jump to the article here. Sounds good. Because I didn't really want to just copy paste it all into our doc. But it's interesting. This comes from psychologydetay.com. It was published in uh, 2012, posted by Graham C.L. Davey, who was a PhD. So he kind of goes into how Richard McNally, they spent 10 years discussing this and studying this. And in particular, they were asking why it is that some people embrace the identity of alien abductee 
at no point during this did they accept the idea that these people had ever been really abducted by aliens and taken away in a UFO. (laughs) So these were their five sort of um, common traits. The first was regularly experiencing sleep paralysis and hallucinations upon awakening. So this is a very common thing. So it says here that on awakening from sleep paralysis, terror gives rise to hallucinations of flashing lights and buzzing sounds. Some experience feelings of floating around the room or seeing figures in the room, sometimes described as shadow people, sometimes as aliens, whatever else. And many people interpret these post-sleep paralysis experiences as dreaming, while others experience these as seeing figures, ghosts, aliens. Okay. Which we, I, I could, I could relate to that. I've actually had a sleep paralysis experience where really? I, I believe this was when we were actually staying in a hotel in Vancouver. I experienced um, in the middle of the night. I would describe it. I wouldn't describe it as a dream. I was awake in the room and I couldn't move. I was completely stiff as a board, and I levitated. I levitated above the bed, and then I actually at one point my body was turned onto its side, so I was like kind of facing the wall. And I don't remember anything other than that. <laughs> that's bizarre. So that's my one experience with sleep paralysis. And I'm not explaining that as any sort of alien phenomenon because I don't think it was. <laughs> but it's, it, that to me rings a bell. So anyways, that was one. Number okay. two, a tendency to recall false memories. Hmm. So this is a quote from the Psychology Today article. In an elegant set of experimental studies, McNally and colleagues found that individuals who claimed to have been abducted by aliens were prone to what is known as false memory syndrome. That is, alien abductees regularly claim to recall words, items, sentences, and memory tests that they had never actually seen before. Huh, I wonder how they determine that. Hmm. Um, if this false memory effect can be generalized to an autobiographical memory, then individuals who claim to be abducted by aliens would be twice as likely to falsely remember things that had never happened to them, more than uh, would be uh, non-abductees. What do you think of that? False memories. So the creation of memories. For me, when I think of that, I go back to the Betty and Barney Hill where they went under hypnosis, right, to uncover these memories. So who knows right. what amount of suggestibility they themselves and their individual personalities were prone to. I don't yeah, know. Right. Because, yeah, no, the interesting thing, like, yeah, like um, you can have a memory of something that isn't real. You know what I mean? Like, say, for yeah. example, like I, I'm hypnotized. I just watched a movie about something. I happen to be thinking about you know, the bunyip. And, <laughs> and so when I'm hypnotized, I'm thinking of me in a situation with that. You're getting kidnapped by a bunyip. <laughs> right, well, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, um, yeah. it's just, it's just supplanted information. That's just right. how it happened in the context that you're in. Exactly. But, so they were prone to that. Also prone to high levels of absorption, quote absorption. So what is absorption? So absorption is a trait related to fantasy proneness vivid imagery and susceptibility to hypnosis and suggestion. So it kind of ties into the the second one above there. So it says here, um, because of this, it's probably not surprising that many alien abductees recall their experiences under hypnosis. Yeah. Where memories of abduction can be induced through suggestibility, (laughs) especially Mm. if the person leading the hypnosis session asks particularly leading questions about the abduction. So I would actually be interested to see if there was some sort of script or some sort of record of what Betty and Barney Hill were asked during that hypnosis session. Because if there wasn't anything specific to, Im- to, to supplant anything and they were just asking like, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Or what do you remember of that night or something yeah. of this hour here? Exactly. And then they say 
all those things, Silvercraft taken mm-hmm. in, you know, whatever, violated all this stuff. That's different. But mind you, this is happening in the 60s too. So we have the um, suggestibility of cultural phenomena too, right? The 1950s stories. films and all that stuff. Yep, definitely. Exactly. Definitely. And thinking back too, when did Flatwoods happen? That was in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a big event. Here. Military was involved. Exactly. So there was stuff to kind of preposition there. Potentially. Of false, false. Well, I'm not going to say false. I'm going to say maybe potentially false memories. And okay. I, I, I have, sorry. Oh. I, I, I like, are we getting close to theories here? I mean, I guess, cause like I do have just so much to say, but I don't want to there, too early. There was two other ones that I wanted to touch on cause there okay. was five altogether. Let's do it. Um, I'll just do this really quickly, but I did want to mention that on the hypnosis thing, we didn't get any sort of, um, record of hypnosis with Charlotte Brown. No, I don't if believe anything, she was hypnotized. If anything, she was trying to forget. <laughs> But well, she went from saying that it was disturbing and that she thought she was going to die and she was afraid to walk past the site. And then later in the interview as an adult, like she was talking about how like, oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, she didn't seem to be as bothered by it. She wasn't afraid of being abducted again. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, she kind of jumped back and forth she, a she got, she got over it over the years because it's quite a number of years later, right? Jumping from 1947 to 1986. Right. All right. Two other things is that these people exhibited, um, New age beliefs. They were they were more ready to believe things <laughs> that are not easily explainable within our existing knowledge of physics. So that's another interesting one. So ideas about beliefs in alternative medicines, healing, astrology, fortune telling, all those types of things. So these beliefs would certainly allow the individual to accept things happening to them that would be dismissed by existing scientific knowledge. So, right. They're they're open and they're almost wanting. I want to believe. Yeah, they want to believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other one, too, is the idea that (laughs) familiarity with the cultural narrative of alien abduction. So that's kind of self-explanatory. And we've already kind of touched on that, too. Yeah, we have. Yeah. So he never, this Professor McNally never, ever um, entertained the idea that they had ever been, like I said, actually abducted. And this is a quote from him. He says, it's still unclear whether all these characteristics are the necessary ingredients in the recipe for alien abduction or whether some are more necessary than others. But, 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 a key thing to note about this research is that all of these studies of these abductees were carried out after their experience. So it is difficult to know whether these five traits are consequences of the experience or were factors that led the individuals to have these experience and to interpret them the way that they did. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And one other thing too that I thought was interesting about this is that he kind of said, he said, alien abduction experiences often deepen spiritual awareness and give shape to the identities of abductees and provide a basis for their beliefs about the world and the universe epistemology formation definitely so if you're forming your your sense of self around this that's way more real than a lot of things in the world right so that to me lends credence to how believable these stories are and how they tell them with such emotional rawness right and just they wholeheartedly believe this is something that experience they were experienced. Totally. And I and I get this whole psychological analysis and these and these different sort of um the points that you've been these five main points here that you've gone through. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like again and again and again though, the thing that keeps coming up in my head though, is the trace evidence, the physical evidence, the things that go along with these stories. Right. And then in addition, also just the idea, I've said this already, that with you look at 100% of, of, of abductees that have, have claimed that this has happened to them, Not it can't be 100% of them fall into these categories. Like it just, mm-hmm. it just, 
that would be unlikely. Exactly. That would not be Occam's razor. Exactly. And, and even Charlotte, right? The daytime experience, you can't, because like essentially what he kind of comes back to is the idea that these people are all experiencing a form of sleep paralysis and right. some sort of hallucination. That to me doesn't make sense with the Charlotte Brown second encounter, right? And even no. with the first one where it was like, it was not as if, like, unless she was, like, literally, like, sleepwalking and dreaming and thinking, like, you know what I mean? Like, you can't sleepwalk home from school. Or no. You can't, you can't have a sleep paralysis <laughs> experience at school walking. Well, you know and, what I and mean? And also, like, like, typically a sleep paralysis experience. So, like, even from, like, going back to, like, Astonishing Legend, shadow people and, like, that kind of thing. It's, like, you're, you're, not, you're not walking around the whole house. Like, the shadow people aren't chasing you around the house. Like, you are floating you're trapped it's like the classic bad yeah. dream you can't run away mm-hmm. you're in your room or the wherever you are or, right or yeah the, the, the hat man the hat where man. he's like he's suffocating you like but on she the chest. she walked out of her house yeah in that first one right it's yeah. like got up felt compelled left the house like that's not sleep paralysis no that reminds me of charlie red star again where there was the the little girl right from the family i can't remember their names i think it was a fake name anyway but she had experiences where in the middle of the night she just got up and she was standing at her window and there was just this like this fiery glow lighting up the entire countryside and then she sees the craft like slowly just like close to the surface right of the um the field yeah just going over just Just an an unknown compelling force and we've heard that phrase before Mm -hmm. that Um, very much reminded me of the skinwalker um of a phenomenon too definitely yeah (laughs) so i mean all yeah like <laughs> are we getting towards theories here? Are we getting towards our conclusions, or what kind you- of? Yeah, like I, I have a lot more on this McNally stuff. But we can kind of just gloss over it. The idea, yeah, this sleep paralysis stuff. But again, right? Yeah, I already said this midday encounter, Charlotte Brown. Could this be explained as a form of sleep paralysis? I don't think so. Yeah, we're, we're scratching that one off. My big question is, how the f would these people come up with all these crazy stories of aliens and having sex with them, slash being experimented on? Um, it's so wild, incredibly out of the ordinary. If these people aren't exhibiting other traits that are psychologically unsound to me, I'm just like, why would they come up with all this? Can you explain it as simply collective unconscious where people are drawing from this cultural phenomena that we've created ourselves? Not Are humans that smart? (laughs) Like, no, I mean, maybe we are, but not all of them. Like if I'm a betting man, it's like, no, it can't be every single one. Exactly. And even McNally, like he's, he kind of argues that these people are saying the same things because they're familiar with the cultural narrative. However, he cannot claim to know that these people were already aware of this narrative before their experiences, right? No way to know. There are some people that say like, I hadn't had, I didn't even know what this was. I didn't even know what orbs were until I saw one myself and looked into it. Right. Yeah. So there you go. And just because the 1950s was packed full of sci-fi movies doesn't mean that any that these people had were aware of it at all mm-hmm. or aware of the flatwoods or would have even incident. remotely believed it mm-hmm. that too because mm-hmm. that's what a lot of them say right they say i was a staunch non-believer mm-hmm. did not believe in ufos did not believe in abductions or aliens anything like that mm-hmm. and here i am now sitting here telling you that it's <laughs> happened to me yeah bonkers I had a quote from Carl Sagan on alien life and abduction scenarios and things like that. Oh, I like this. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of interesting. He says here, it kind of picks up in the middle of a sentence, but says here, a kind of skepticism is routinely applied to the radio search for extraterrestrial intelligence by its most fervent proponents. I do not see in alien abduction situations a similar rigorous application of scientific skepticism by its proponents. Instead... 
I see an enormous acceptance at face value and leading the witnesses and all sorts of suggestions, plus uh, the contamination by the cult- general culture of this idea. This is end quote. This is from a PBS uh, interview. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And he says, like, on the state of the evidence, he said it's almost entirely anecdotal. And that even the fact that someone says something doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean they're lying, but it doesn't mean it's true. So the belief is there on the part of the p- person telling the story, but it doesn't yeah. actually lend itself to anything that can be independently confirmed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he says, to be taken seriously, you need physical evidence that could be examined <laughs> at leisure by skeptical scientists. The scraping of a whole ship... Um, and the discovery that that it contains like isotopic ratios that aren't present on Earth. So he's kind of talking of yeah, exactly. So material of absolutely bizarre properties, either electric conductivity or ductility. I don't even know what that means. But he says that those things would lend credence to these accounts. But there are no scrapings. There are no interior photographs. There are no filched pages from the captain's logbook of the alien craft. <laughs> this is so, like, so cynical, though. It is. Because it's like there was traces left. that The Delphos ring, there was stuff left behind. Mm-hmm. Falcon Lake, trace evidence. Um, hundreds of abductees with photographs and people who were physically there looking at scoot marks, scrape mm-hmm. marks, um, needle marks. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, we do have videos and photos of, of craft that are probably 99.99 continuing well, garbage, but what about the one that was cited? Um, oh my gosh, that was like the 2013 fires. Remember it? Or was it 2015 here in the West Kelowna? Here in the Okanagan. We should yep. share that on our Facebook group. Cause there was a bizarre, yeah. Uh, non-ballistic motion moving craft and silently was, and this it was, was moving in the clouds and it was report or caught on um it was was it a ctv i think it was ctv yeah or chbc something or something like that, yeah. it was a news station. local news um they were interviewing someone and then it just appears in the distance right. above like way above in the mountains it's crazy yeah i love that one i was like what that's right by our house <laughs> yeah <laughs> and all, all of these are are not directly related to abductions per se, but they are evidence. It's evidence that can't be ignored. It is. I mean... It is. And if, yeah, Carl Sagan, he's saying it's all anecdotal. This was back in the 90s he made this statement, though, so... That's true. But, I mean, even thinking back to Clarenville, you've Mm -hmm. got got an RCMP officer and dozens and dozens of witnesses staring at something that is definitely not a cloud. Exactly, Um, yeah. What's that? What is it? I don't know. So what what are your conclusions and final observations? Maybe let's go back to the Charlotte Brown case first, and then let's open it up to more general. Sure. So with Charlotte Brown, really interesting interview. I enjoyed listening to that, and we will have that link, so you guys should listen to the whole thing yourselves as well. It's like 15 minutes or something. I'm going to even just actually put it right in the show notes on our episodes. You can just direct click from it from our episode. Yeah. Yeah. I believe her. I do believe her. Um, yeah, she was a very credible sounding person. Definitely. And I hope that, uh, maybe at some point that box turns up with the calcified burr that she <laughs> claimed to have sneezed out. I don't yeah, probably, I mean, probably is, just like garbage though. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. this was back in the eighties too, that the interview took place. Yeah. I think that, um, she's lucky that her experience wasn't as traumatic and horrific as th- other people describe. Well, it was pretty traumatic. She got wow. cut open. She got a, a burr that was just like incredibly painful to insert behind her nasal I'd cavity. Say, well, true. But I mean, like the Whitley Streamers of the world had it a little more, <laughs> a little more intense. Well, you know I what guess. I'm saying? But maybe she's just blocked it out. Psychic blocking. Like, That's the part that I think the psychology comes into play really is the, is the blocking it out. It's a real traumatic event. And that's the real psychology. 
those are there's false memories that can come up out of that maybe Mm -hmm. but there's got to be something that's and that's something that came up in in um in the cbc morningside episode too where they talked about how a lot of these victims seemingly um they do they they just mirror trauma victims right yeah and and the mcnally and his colleagues at harvard when they did their studies they they kind of came to the same conclusions that these people basically were mirroring um just like, yeah, like rape victims, trauma victims, people that had experienced massive traumas in their life. So whether or not, like, where would this come from if it hadn't actually happened, right? Yeah. Was there something terrestrial and then they spin it into an alien because they can't deal with the fact that their father touched them when they were young? Like, is that <laughs> it? Like, I don't know. Doesn't sound like the case with Charlotte Brown. No, It no. could be the case with some people. Could be. I mean, the other thing too, you mentioned uh, that I want to come back around to is this idea of a portal. You, you mentioned that at the beginning, yep. um, walking into a doorway, like just a lit doorway, right? And yeah, she's describing a craft, but with a lot of these things in that story from 1978, Muskoka is the, the uh, some sort of a craft goes up into the sky, disappears into another larger Behind the cloud, area. they see it, right. yeah, the big light. Right. I think one of the major points of skepticism, especially with these cases, looking back, interview happening in the 80s and prior to that, is the idea of nuts and bolts craft traveling intergalactically from light years away Mm. and that is a part of the skepticism yeah totally because what if this is interventional what if she literally yeah that's so awesome what if she stepped through a portal and that's where she was and that again reminds me of um reminds me of skinwalker ranch right when they would see these lights and these portal like things open up and then seal themselves exactly it's it's the idea that um it kind of ties into maybe a bit of the grand unified a little Mm -hmm. but this idea that like gray's other extraterrestrials that people claim to see or be abducted by or whatever, even though Grays is the main one. Yeah, they're not traveling from light years away and from some other planet. It's just, it's another flip in the page. Hmm, I like that. It's yeah. one of the, it's the bubble right next to the other bubble. That's right. <laughs> so that's cool. So you're going interdimensionally. I mean, I don't know if I'm going Well, this there. is inter- into the portal. Into the portal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we are going in, the, in there then. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> We're already there. I always <laughs> seem to do that. Sorry, everybody. Portals. I actually quite like that, though. <laughs> yeah, that's a really nice way to wrap this whole thing up. Um, I will say, yeah, I do believe Charlotte. I believe she experienced something that I will probably hopefully never experience myself. <laughs> Let's hope. We could um, speculate till the cows come home about yep. all of this stuff. Like mm-hmm. why are they being abducted? Like the tests, whatever. Yeah. Those are those commonalities, those traits that I mentioned too, those five yeah. common ones. That's interesting. We want to know what you guys think though. Yes, we do. Yeah. Definitely. So hit us up. Uh, we always love getting your emails, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's about it, this episode or anything. So into the portal mailbox at gmail.com hit us up. We love yeah, it. We've got all our socials, you know, into the portal podcast. Uh, that's on our oh, Instagram, Instagram and then right, into yeah. the portal one, the number one on Twitter. And yeah. we're super active on there. And then of course you can find us at straightupstrange.com where mm-hmm. we're a part of a really sweet lineup of shows that's growing. So we'll be, uh, yeah, there's gonna be more shows joining the network soon which is really cool yeah and then thanks again everybody for um uh, yeah participating in the contest mm-hmm. and uh yeah stay tuned for some really cool newsletter stuff coming from straight up strange oh and one final announcement um we do have a little bit of a back order coming for our patrons yes yes so all of y'all that have signed up in the last like two months i guess right. now like yeah th- yeah any any time in this month or the month of may you're still awaiting your little packages yes we're we're just we are waiting on them to in the mail and then as soon as we get them we will 
get them to you. That's right. So thank you to all of our patrons <laughs> for your continued support. Yeah. It means everything to us. It really does. Uh, yeah. It like re- really means everything. And it keeps you, us going. It does. Like not just not the inspiration? money. Like it's inspiration. No, no. It's not the money. It's it's the yeah, ins- yeah it is. Yeah. Um so oh, yeah, if you guys want to support community. the show, even a dollar a month would go so, so far. Like if we totally. had ha- even half of our listeners um donated a buck a month mm-hmm. and maybe we'll change that. We'll add a little extra into the dollar a month. But literally we could do this full time as a living. Yeah. Like we we could sit and be recording and doing podcasts full time. And that would just make our lives so much awesomer. And we really just <laughs> want to dedicate more time to this. That's exactly it. We've definitely had a shortage of time. Lately. And it just seems to be getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> I'll it's say tough. That. It's tough. It's just the busy season. So we do thank you again for your patience. And like we mentioned off the bat, like we are going to be doing Monday releases from now on because of my stupid work schedule. Yeah. So it sorry. Is what it is. Sorry you're not going to have it on your Monday morning commute, but Tuesday morning, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. And again, thanks guys. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hit us up. Let us know what other uh, topics you want to hear in the future. And thank you so much for listening to uh, another UFO episode here on Into the Portal. Exactly. Thanks to all of our lovely patrons. And until next time on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.